views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I love money. I love money more than I love the things it can buy. Does that surprise you? Money. It don't care whether I'm good or not. It don't care whether I snore or not. It don't God I pray to. There are only three things in this world with that kind of unconditional acceptance. Dogs, donuts, and money. Only money is better. You know why? Because it don't make you fat and it don't poop all over the living room floor. There's only one thing I like better. Other people's money. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, October 18th, 2007. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, here on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing, just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on some of the thoughts and conversations today. Or if you have any other ideas or comments on the show, you might want to email at us, uh, us too, at uh, justwritechrw at gmail.com. And of course, if you didn't guess by the opening of the show there, our theme today is going to be about money. Uh, with uh, the dollar at par now, Canadian dollar is pretty well at par, maybe even above, going up and down a bit relative to the U.S. dollar. People are talking a little bit more about money these days. But generally, just in the level of exchange rates, uh, how much does this cost versus how much does that cost, and most people really don't give money much more of a thought even though their lives depend on it, they use it all the time, they don't, you know, why does somebody accept this piece of paper called a dollar or whatever form it might take might take in exchange for goods or services? How many of us really, you know, think about that? Uh, the late Sophie Tucker was uh, once quoted as saying, I've been rich and I've been poor, and honey, rich is better. And, of course, not many people would uh, disagree with that. We've heard over the years, too, in politics, especially from the NDP, you know how they say that excess wealth, uh, quote, end quote, should not be allowed to exist and that wealth should be redistributed through a more equitable tax system and through social programs. And it's funny that we have allowed our politics to even get that far because it, that's such an obvious and, and, you know, totally wrong, it's a contradiction in terms, really, uh, statement to say that you can just you know, redistribute people's money. When that goes un, un uh, you know, unresponded to, uh, people get away with things. You know, if, if that was a private citizen saying the same thing instead of being saying it through politics, you know, I'm going to go and redistribute my neighbor's wealth, well, we'd call that act by its true name. We'd call it theft. But when a politician does exactly the same thing, we call it equity. We call it, you know, a, a great, wonderful a positive virtue in society. And yet, uh, you know, we know that stealing is bad in our personal lives. Why do we not look at it that way when we do it collectively through government? And I think that's one of the basic issues surrounding any discussion of money. 
if you think about it, there's really only um, three ways to acquire something in life. You can either get it by gift, somebody give you something. Uh, you can earn it, that's through trade, you exchange something for, for something else. Or, of course, you can take it without another person's consent, and that's what we call stealing. And it generally takes two forms. You either take, it, take something from them by force, or you take it from them by fraud, which is one of the reasons, uh, because both of those things deny a person's right to consent to a tr transaction, which gets into some interesting moral issues about the nature of money. Um, you know, people, you hear people say things like, just follow the money, or money is, uh, you know, always about commercialism and the consumer society, and, and, you know, some people would give up their mother or sell their mother for money or something like that. I don't think that's really true. I don't think it's the money so much, even though at the beginning you heard in, uh, that, that was actually Danny DeVito at the beginning of the clip there who said some things, he likes money more than the things it can buy, and that's from the movie, of course, Other People's Money. Uh, which is a great movie, by the way, if you ever, if you haven't seen it yet. It stars Danny DeVito, Gregory Peck. It's not only a good uh, movie in terms of being uh, very entertaining, it's a lot of fun, and it's it's got a lot of laughs. It's it's even a, a chick flick kind of thing you can go for a date with. But it's also very educational in terms of economic issues. And uh, it's almost like, I would almost say it's a, a modern-day fountainhead, which really illustrates... Uh, you know, how capitalism w works and how it should work and how everyone ends up being a winner at the end. Great movie, I think, if you haven't seen it. Uh, check it out sometime. It'll surprise you. But uh, in talking about money, I'm not going to pretend to be uh, an expert on money. Maybe I've had more experience than most. Uh, back in the early 70s, I took economics at Fanshawe College, part of my business administration program. And uh got to be honest with you, my first year there, it was a two-year program, I was uh, unfortunate enough to have my economics class scheduled at about uh, 3.30 in the afternoon, so that meant I missed most of them, if you know what I mean, and I had to carry it the next year, but second year when I took it, I aced it, and economics is easy if you can stick with it. But before I continue, we got a call there, is that, that it, Ira? Yes, we have George on line one. George. He has an opinion about money. Oh, that's terrific. What do you got to say, George? Okay, I'd like to say uh, money is a precious thing if you have to work hard for it. In, in all of the world, you have to work very hard for money. It's an ill, I think, in our society that people are falling into positions where they think, oh, this job will make a lot of money. All I have to do is sit around in an office. I sort of uh, give my opinions about things or things like that sort of in a clinical sense, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's like people become entrapped even by money uh, that uh, people's opinions say, uh, oh, I want to move away or say if I smoke a joint of marijuana once in a while. And then the person that's making the money, giving the opinions, is saying even once a month is too much. For one thing, they're not experts about this, so what his opinion really shouldn't mean much. And the reason why so many people are in these positions of making literally five-figure salaries for giving people their advice, that's one thing that we don't need in our society anymore. More. It doesn't make the society more productive, more creative, more imaginative. And uh, well, then I why, think why we've do you really think, got to question our values. Well, why and, do you think someone would pay? Why would I, for example, pay someone an exorbitant amount of money for their opinion? Wouldn't their they? opinion. It's not paying someone for your opinion. Uh, I'm talking about like in, in an institutional sense. 
like uh, like where, corporate corporate uh, presidents and things like that. Uh, for presidents, not. I'm talking more for like mental health uh, professionals, even a lot of doctors. Like I think that doctors, the reason that people, the doctors get involved is they do want to help people. It is a, a worthy, noble position to be a doctor. But I think uh, it's my own personal opinion about like sort of uh, that there's so many psychiatrists and there's so many uh, people living in the system uh, of uh, being helped out with money. And then on the other end of the scale, I think in, in a huge economical sense, like I guess your study goes towards, uh, that uh, people making a lot of money uh, just giving their opinions like sort of a psychiatrist to a patient type of thing. If you look at the, the parking lots at the Regional Mental Health Care London, it's absolutely filled with, you know, it's huge parking lots filled with nice cars, and you think all these people are making huge amounts of money while this Joe over here works in a factory all his life to make $1,000 a month. He can't feed his family. Uh, he can't, uh, you know, buy food. He can't... Uh, paid have transportation. I've got opinions about that, too. Well, no, uh, you're bringing cost. up some interesting points. Okay, thank you but, very much. Okay, uh, th thanks, George. Uh, okay. A lot of the things uh, George has brought up there have to do really with the law of supply and demand. Exactly. Yeah. Largely. And uh, the, the issue is that, of course, uh, you're talking about the medical field, which is a whole issue in and of itself, it's, uh, exactly, which has yeah. been ar ar artificially restricted in its supply to a great degree, mm -hmm. uh, politically so in some exactly. degree. I agree. And, uh, and, of course, the professions themselves like to restrict how many people enter the profession. These are all natural inclinations. Mm. What we have to be careful of as a society is to keep that society open and free so that people can compete and that people exactly, can yeah. have yeah, options and ways of using their own money to buy the services that they want. Exactly. Um, it's interesting, you know, you talk about uh, helping other people with money. Mm. Again, it comes back to the other people's money, doesn't it? Uh, that's what we do politically. Uh, exactly. We generally... uh, if I can state one more thing. Uh, sure. Uh, in, a, in a way, I think we've got to thank, like, the rural-type uh, areas of Canada. You know, uh, I work sometimes in, like, small towns around uh, Ontario, mm -hmm. and uh, I saw a sign once that said, if you ate today, thank a farmer. And, uh, uh, like, in other countries, they've got, you know, people have their lands. Uh, you know, they get married, the man and the woman go out to work their fields every day, and they have a very simple life, but a very peaceful and very happy life. And I think we're letting it get all away with materialism, as you were saying, and, like, people just wanting an exorbitant amount of money, thinking that that's the key to happiness. When they find out it isn't, you know, in a big way, they make other people pay for it. So I'd, l I'd like to thank you very much for having me on the air, and uh, I really respect what you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, George. Okay, thank you. Bye. Take care. Uh, again, uh, an interesting point talking about the materialism and how you know pe money doesn't buy happiness. Uh, but then again, you know you you hear people always saying, "Well, it's better to be uh, rich and unhappy than it is to be poor and unhappy." And of course, there's some truth to that. But the issue is, whose money is it? Whose service is it? Who's getting paid for it? And again, it it does come down to redistributing wealth how what what is fair what makes things fair how do we make certain that what a person's earning in a society is a just remuneration remuneration and uh that is one of the reasons we should have free economies because it's always a law of supply and demand uh you cannot just say and i but i understand what george is saying when he says you have to work hard uh you know to make money that's true but working hard is often confused with 
what I would more emphasize is productivity. Sometimes you can be very productive and not have to work as hard. If you can figure out a way to do something faster, quicker, in a smarter way, or you invent a tool that does the job quicker for you, you are being more productive. And that, in turn, is, it is production that raises the wealth of any nation, of any uh, you know, jurisdiction. And the more you produce, in fact, production is profit. Production is uh, is wealth. It, they're not just merely synonyms. They're the act, they are the actual very same thing. Again, uh, you know, if anybody tells you they're an expert on uh, on money and understanding money, it just is uh, is not so. As I read from one economist, he says anybody tells you they they understand the whole nature of money is lying to you because it has so many dimensions. It's a little bit like in physics studying the properties of light. Sometimes, if you do certain experiments, it will reveal that light is a particle. Other times, it will reveal that light is a wave, and the two things don't seem to mesh. It's been one of those debates in physics circles. Same with money. Money takes so many forms. It can be a commodity, a, an instrument of exchange, a savings vehicle, and therefore, when people talk about it, they often are talking about a different aspect of money. Now, you know, I used to work in banking back in the 1970s. I used to work for a company called Canada Permanent Trust Company. They, they later called it the Permanent, located on the corner of Richmond and King there for several years. And I used to handle a lot of cash. And I used to carry it out to Richmond Street and walk next door and around the corner to the Toronto Dominion Bank that used to be there on the corner. Neither of these institutions are there now. but uh, And go in and make these deposits. And this wouldn't be at a regular teller's wicket, but at uh, one in the back with bulletproof glass separating the employees from the customers with the big cash deposits. And uh, I'd be carrying... Uh, oh, at least 15000 to $50,000 down the street going next door and making this deposit in cash. And uh, very interesting experience having been in, in the banking industry and trust company industry for about 10, 10 years or so. You know, I actually got to sign a check, not like one that you or I would write, but one used to call them official requisitions. And they sort of have a status more like a certified check. And the largest check I ever signed that cleared the bank was a million bucks, believe it or not. Uh, it wasn't my money, of course, but how many of us can say that we signed a million-dollar check that actually cleared the bank? Um, it's really funny. Uh, while I was at the Permanent as a branch accountant, I actually had the authority to sign up to $3 million per day without having to get anyone's authorization from higher up. And I used to sign so many checks on behalf of the corporation, I had to learn to abbreviate my signature to the awful scribble that it still is today. But even though I handled a lot of money during those years, I really didn't understand the nature of money until uh, much later in life. And it, you know, it's the kind of thing that uh, you realize in retrospect, that could have cost me my job uh, in some cases, because sometimes you make errors that you're not aware of or overlook things uh, that you're not aware might pr present a problem. I'll give you an example of something that happened to me. Uh, one time, uh, without knowing it and realizing it, I had left on my desk in my basket, oh, about $250,000 worth of unsigned Thomas Cook Traveler's checks for about three or four days. And there were all kinds of people walking by them and going around them, and no one ever touched them. And yet, if, uh, if people had known that that was as good as cash, because they were unsigned, someone might have picked it up. And it wasn't until uh, a teller came by, I was really early in my banking days then, who explained to me, yeah, this stuff's negotiable, maybe we should put it in the safe. And so we did, and no one was any the wiser. But uh, it's that kind of thing that um, 
you know, people talk about uh, generally when they talk about money is uh, what they can get for it and, and uh, often poverty. Usually in the media, everybody talks about poverty. Very few people talk about money and wealth. And, of course, there is the whole um, issue of uh, the morality of money and its necessity. Um, you know, uh, Ayn Rand in her incredible novel Atlas Shrugged, which is still getting attention. There's even an article about it in the National Post just uh, last week or the week before. Uh, I think through the character John Galt, she, she wrote the following about money. She said, money is the barometer of a society's virtue. When you see that trading is done not by consent, but by compulsion, when you see that in order to produce, you need to obtain permission from men who produce nothing, when you see that money is flowing to those who deal not in goods but in favors, when you see that men get richer by graft and by pull rather than by work, and your laws don't protect you against them but protect, protect them against you, when you see corruption being rewarded and honesty becoming a self-sacrifice, you may know that your society is doomed, end quote. And those were the cryptic words, I believe, of John Galt in the novel Atlas Shrugged. It, it, it's funny, um, you know, the, the thing about money, when you talk about uh, win-lose, people always think that when they give money up for something that they're somehow suffering a loss, when that's only true in one circumstance, and this is why voluntarism is moral and, and involuntary is immoral. Let's be frank, that's basically the dividing line. You see, if you have a voluntary transaction, you have a win-win situation. If you've got something you want to sell me and I want to buy it, uh, we both have to agree before that transaction takes place. And neither of us, now understand this, this is where people confuse money with value. Neither, neither of us would go ahead with that transaction if we didn't think it left us better off than before. So we both gain. So if I buy a newspaper from somebody for a dollar and they give me the newspaper, to them the newspaper is worth less than a dollar. To me, the newspaper is worth a little more than a dollar or I wouldn't have given it up. It's not an equal exchange in that sense. We both benefit. And in a sense, wealth is increased. And that dollar can change hands many, many times back and forth. So if you look at the other side of the equation, if one side is forced, let's say somebody forces you to buy a newspaper that you don't want, uh, the, the person who gets the money who's putting out the newspaper is the winner in that, but you're the loser because you do not value that newspaper and therefore you have lost wealth. Even though it can be measured in a dollar or whatever, it, your loss is actually greater than that. So interestingly enough, the value of money is directly affected by free will. And money is depreciated in value when it's forced to be spent by some way. So you can already see what happens with all government spending, which is all forced spending. Uh, the money itself is already depreciated, and that's why we don't get value for our money. Now, of course, not all values can be measured in dollars and cents. Um, we value our friendships, we value our relationships, we value our principles or beliefs, and we often forego economic opportunities or rewards. But, but remember this, those foregone opportunities can be measured in dollars and cents, even if uh, the values you choose in their stead might not be easily measurable. I remember when I was a kid, I used to frequent all the used comic book stores because I used to collect a lot of comics, a lot of Marvel collections. 
and searching for rare collector's items or those special issues that would complete your collection. I remember getting a quick lesson in economics one day when I observed a young mother come into one of these stores in search of some cheap comic books that she could give to her kids, uh, you know, just to occupy them while they went about shopping. So she just haphazardly grabbed a few titles and placed them on the store counter, only to surprisingly discover that while most of the comic books selected cost only 10 to 25 cents, two of the items were in the $30 range. And looking quite shocked, she questioned the inequitable pricing of the comic books. After all, she reasoned, this 10-cent Bugs Bunny comic book had 32 pages printed in color on newsprint, just like the $30 Fantastic Four comic book title did. So what made one of them only worth 10 cents while the other was an expensive collector's item, she asked. And replied the clerk, collectors. That's all that makes it valuable. Someone had to want it. And that was one of my first lessons in economics, that value is entirely subjective, but prices are objective. That's the point at which each party in the transaction mutually benefits. So we'll carry on with the subject right after this break, and you'll hear that, that very point illustrated once again. The items up for sale were all aboard an old derelict freighter that the Bajorans found adrift about a light year from here. The cargo hold was crammed with valuable items of every description. Antiques, paintings, vehicles. It's all a bunch of junk. <laughs> Listen to some of this stuff. A mid-24th century ceramic Romulan water basin, slightly cracked. A pair of Tellarite shoes, date unknown. A mid-20th century human baseball card. A Tholian pedestal. A baseball card? mid-condition 1951 Willie Mays rookie card? No, this is it. What do you mean? It's perfect. This is how I can cheer up my dad. You know how much he loves baseball. He'll go nuts when he sees this. Tell him to be here at 1,200 hours, and he can bid, along with everyone else. No, I'm going to bid on this. He's always doing things for me. I want to do something for him for a change. And this is it. All I have to do is get him this card. How hard can that be? at the auction, use your own money. I'm human. I don't have any money. It's not my fault your species decided to abandon currency-based economics in favor of some philosophy of self-enhancement. Hey, watch it. There's nothing wrong with our philosophy. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. What does that mean exactly? It means... It means we don't need money. Well, if you don't need money, then you certainly don't need mine. How much latinum do you have? How much? Five bars. Five bars! Look, it's taken me a lifetime to save up that much money, and I'm not just going to throw it away for some baseball card. And yet some people would throw a lot of money away on a baseball card, which tells you exactly how people value things very subjectively, and something that you might think is not worth a nickel someone else might prize at a very great price. Welcome back. This is Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call at 519-661-3600. 
it's really funny, you know, just listening to that clip, you hear this sentiment expressed over and over again how any concern with money is somehow evil while, you, you know, doing good and, and improving oneself is a good thing. And you can do one without the other somehow. It's like this magical uh, mind-body dichotomy. You can just split the two things and they don't have to go together. Um, it, it just doesn't work that way. And, and invariably, the people who say they're doing good and watch them, they're always talking about money, about getting other people's money, somehow getting someone else to fund their good cause. And, uh, you know, if there's, of all the stupid Star Trek premises, it's that whole concept that they don't have money, which even in the show itself, as you just heard, the contradiction's just glaring, that you can't even buy a baseball card if you don't have any money. So what's he planning to exchange it back to a barter system? Did the, a ship like the Enterprise get built out of goodwill and people doing good things? Or do they actually have to put food on their table and eat and have families and, and pay the rent and have a home and all that stuff? It just is outrageous. And of course, if you watch the series, you notice through time, that indeed they do use currency, and they call them credits, which is very interesting because we'll be talking about that. And even when they use, uh, you know, the replicators and things like that, that comes out of their pocket. They don't get that stuff for free when they replicate something. Uh, their account, I think, somehow gets automatically debited. That came up in one of their, uh, indirectly, of course, in one of their uh, episodes. So it just didn't... Uh, there is a cost to everything. And yes, they do have money, although it might be a different type of currency. Now, most people go through uh, their entire lives using money, working for money, planning their lives around how much money they may or may not have, and yet they never really question what money is and, and how it works. And it's funny because sometimes people think, well, abstract concepts aren't real. They're just uh, things that uh, you talk about on an academic level and don't really take any real seat in reality or in day-to-day -day life. And yet money is a completely abstract concept. There is nothing really that you can touch that's called money. There's things that are valued in terms of dollars, but nothing that's really a dollar in and of itself. You can have a coin that says it's a dollar. You can have a coin that represents $10 or $100 or $1,000 or a gold bar that represents so many dollars. But the dollar itself is an abstract concept. And, of course, it takes its physical form by way of representation. And that's what we're talking about when, we're, when we refer to precious metals, paper currency, or property. Um, for example, dollars are a measurement of value, which is, again, a completely abstract and subjective concept, which we just discussed, whereas the form that dollars may take could be cash, securities, IOU, property, credit, uh, all sorts of things. My, uh, my trusty encyclopedia defines money as a medium of exchange based upon a standard unit of value. Now, of course, the medium of exchange is the form, whether it's... Uh, in uh, paper currency, debenture, it could take any kind of form. It could be coins, could be silver, gold, and based upon a standard unit of value, which would be the dollar. Money also performs the functions of provi providing a standard of deferred payments and a store of value, which we generally use the word savings to describe. You can save literally the energy that you created, that you needed to, to, to earn that money. You're saving it, like, a, like almost in a storage battery. But it's all very abstract, and, and it's representative, and that's what uh, money basically is. Money can be a commodity, such as gold or silver, or it may be a symbol, as with paper money or token coins. 
uh, copper, nickel, and lesser silver coins. And in times of rare shortages, it's interesting, but other things have been money in the past too. After World War II, cigarettes were very usable as money. Stockings were, and fuel was, uh, petrol and gasoline, and anything that was shortage or in great demand. Generally, money has to be a luxury item in order to be uh, considered money. Other symbols that have been used to represent money in the years have been porcelain coins, fur pelts, wampum, and cattle even. Uh, believe it or not, the, the source of our word pecuniary uh, it comes from the Latin pecus, P-E-C-U-S, which was a Latin word for cattle, which were once used as money. Now, of course, to be generally satisfactory, the money must be reasonably uh, durable and easily exchangeable. You don't want to be carrying around your house or your car to have to trade them. <laughs> that could make things difficult. Money is not just uh, made up out of the spot. You can't make anything be money just because you think you can and because you think people will accept it. I run into people that think this all the time. And uh, it's interesting. Isabel Patterson in her book, uh, The God of the Machine, has a chapter in there called Why, Why Real Money is Indispensable. And she talks about some of the nature of money and uh, what makes something valuable. And she says that the, 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 you know, the material used for money should be durable, divisible, incorruptible, portable, not easily imitated, and found in nature in sufficient but limited quantity. Nothing but the precious metals generally answer these intrinsic requirements, and that's what we've been using for now. Um, the quantity of gold available was always you know, limited to some degree, even though it goes up and down and is affected by the law of supply and demand. Uh, you know, gold is not and was not given value by fiat, which means that you just didn't give gold value by passing a law. It had a value before. There was any laws saying that it had a value. People knew gold had a value because they accepted it and they traded it. And, uh, you know, you can't give something value just by passing a law anymore and you could make cheese or cotton or leather valuable by passing a law and making them dollars. It has a value because it serves a vital need. Uh, and she points out, uh, Isabel Patterson, that, that if a gold coin of the Roman Republic were dug up now, it would have still its original value, even though the Re Roman Republic perished 2,000 years ago. So would a Russian gold ruble minted under the Tsars or a gold coin of Germany or France before uh, 1914? But the paper currency of Russia, German, Germany, or France before 1914 is now all waste paper. It's garbage. I've got some of it, by the way. I've got some old uh, bills that really look fancy, but they're not worth the paper they're printed on, as they say. So, you know, Patterson says, If it is said that anything will do for money so long as people accept it, let it be asked, why will people not accept anything? Offer the man who says anything will do for money a handful of pebbles in payment of a debt and see what happens. <laughs> and of course, one of the reasons we need money, is, this is something she points out, is so that we can make the necessary application of arithmetic to goods and labor, because you couldn't make it without having some kind of common uh, unit of measurement to compare them to. You know, and in applied mathematics, you have to describe your unit. And so uh, you can't be always going around saying three hours of labor are worth uh, two chocolate bars, are worth this, are worth that, and have a whole scale of things. You have one standard of value, and we call that the dollar or the yen or the mark or whatever uh, it might happen to be. And, uh, of course, 
when governments print more money in terms of paper, they're depreciating the value of the paper. It's something uh, I'll be getting into shortly. And the difference has to come out from somewhere, and that generally comes out of wages. When the government prints more money or expands the credit supply, or the credit supply is expanded in indirect ways, um, it, it all comes out of the working man's wages, because that's where the wealth is, and there's no other possible source in the long run. The depreciation in currency comes out of wages immediately, because whatever anybody gets in his pay envelope will buy him that much less in goods. And um, on the other hand, if you have increased production, it will raise wages even though the sum of money is the same, says Patterson, and it'll buy more. And this is one of the things that you, you see so much in labor movements. They have these anti-productive mentalities, yet they want more money. They're, 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 letting, they're being fooled by the, the dollars and cents, by the numbers, and not taking account of the value, which can be derived when you're not even dealing with the numbers. But, uh, you know, credit and depressions have always been two things associated with, uh, well, with depressions. Uh, you have always, real money never is and cannot be the cause of a credit collapse, as Patterson points out. If a financial system is unsound, it is only because of an overextension of credit and paper currency. And that, uh, you know, is again emphasized by a fellow named Clarence B. Carson in, uh, in an essay called Free Enterprise, Key to Prosperity, from a book uh, published by the Freeman the freedom philosophy, and he points out, quote, there is much evidence to show that it is government activity, not free enterprise, which is responsible for the so-called business cycle. The cyclical change from prosperity to depression recession, and then back to prosperity, can be correlated with increases and de decreases in the supply of money, and the cycles result from credit expansions and contractions. The villain of the piece is government manipulation of the money supply. The cure lies not in government intervention to hamper enterprise, but a sound money policy that cannot be manipulated, he suggests. And with that, we'll come back and discuss what such a sound money policy might be right after this. I don't know why when I buy groceries they thank me for shopping there. I don't do it for them. <laughs> I need groceries. If I don't eat, I die. either people making all that money I just don't get it the other day this broker comes up to me he says what do you want to buy I said stocks that go up <laughs> he says you know some stocks go down I said yeah don't get those wouldn't it be simple if it was just like that or wouldn't life be easy if it was just that simple I mean to say uh, welcome back. This is Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you still from now until noon. Um, it was interesting. I was, I was reading in the, um, actually this is out of the National Post, uh, not good news for investors, Bernstein, a, a financial publisher, says, be wary of rising wealth inequality. And uh, he points, makes a point, it's, it's an article written by Jacqueline Thorpe, National Post, October 6, actually. It is traumas and not achievements that drive economic policy, says Peter L. Bernstein, publisher and editor of a number of financial investment newsletters and journals. He says the new trauma on the scene could be rising inequality. 
He says, no need to emphasize the numbers, but the main point is that most people have shared only modestly or even not at all in the great, quote, prosperity of the last 15 years, and now we face the possibility that many of them will lose their homes in mortgage foreclosures, he said. And uh, as as fear of unemployment dominated U.S. economic policy for 35 years after the Great Depression, the memories of steepening economic inequality will remain embedded for some time to come, says Mr. Bernstein. Populist policies, higher taxes, more regulation, protectionism, suspicion of Wall Street and the wealthy, I think is something we are going to have to learn to live with, he said. And the backlash could include the market crimping measures above, trade protectionism, new rules and regulations, and higher taxes. Well, goody, goody, isn't that good news for us coming up? And uh, these are some of the reactions that people actually have when the money supply is not kept in check. Interesting, here's another one. Uh, Dollars fall, a boon for Bush, uh, according to an analysis uh, printed by the National Post July 23, 2007. Bo Nielsen is the author of that. And apparently they're saying that the falling American dollar is boosting the economy and the Republicans' chances in an election in the United States. Everyone from Nobel Prize laureates to the world's biggest bond investors says the Bush administration has reason to cheer that the U.S. dollars slide to historic lows. A weakening dollar is helping the economy and may bolster voters' confidence in the Republican Party as the U.S. heads into a presidential election year. Rather than causing foreigners to flee U.S. securities, the depreciating currency is making American goods less expensive abroad and helping offset the worst housing recession in 16 years. So there you go. They're redistributing the wealth again. Uh, when, Of course, when the United States went to war, it was inevitable that their dollar would go down in value. That's how they are paying for it. That's the hidden cost, one of the many. Uh, and that comes in... Basically, it's inflation, really. Prices are going up for Americans relative to their dollar and the goods that they were used to buying uh, before. It's, uh, you know, it's funny how so many governments think that inflation is good for the economy and can be used to, to make things uh, better, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Henry Hazlitt, in, in a book, wrote a book called uh, Economics and One Easy Lesson. And uh, he had a chapter in there called The Mirage of Inflation, in which he points out that the most obvious and yet the oldest and most stubborn error on which the appeal of inflation rests is that of confusing money with wealth. Uh, That wealth consists in money or in gold and silver, wrote Adam Smith more than two centuries ago, is a popular notion which naturally arises from the double function of money as an instrument of commerce and as a measure of value. To grow rich is to get money, and wealth and money, in short, are in common language considered as in every respect synonymous, said Adam Smith. Real wealth, of course, consists in what is produced and what is consumed, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the houses we live in. It is railways and roads, motor cars, ships, planes, factories, schools, churches and theaters, pianos, paintings, books, anything that's a physical thing that someone values. Yet so powerful is the verbal ambiguity that confuses money with wealth that even those who at times recognize the confusion will slide back into it in the course of their reasoning while they're talking about it. And I do that myself. Each person sees that if he personally had more, if he personally had more money, he could buy more things from others. If he had twice as much money, he could t- buy twice as many things. And to many, the conclusion seems obvious that if the government just issued more money and distributed it to everyone, we'd all be a lot richer. And of course... 
that's a complete illusion because if you have uh, one one million dollars uh, chasing a million dollars worth of goods and then suddenly you have uh, ten million dollars chasing a million dollars worth of goods that money's worth one tenth of it and and a million would buy only a tenth of what a million bought you bought you before so you might have a big number big value of something there it looks like a big number but in literal value it is not big and the problem with inflation is that it does not and cannot affect everyone evenly some people suffer more than others the poor are usually most heavily taxed by inflation in percentage terms in the rich because they don't have the same means of protecting themselves um, either through speculative purchases or in real equities. They can't you know, tie up their money in property where it may, may be safer from uh, currency inflation. Inflation is a kind of tax that's out of control of the tax authorities. It strikes wantonly in all directions. Uh, the rate of tax imposed by inflation is not a fixed one. It cannot be determined in advance. We know what it is today. We do not know what it will what it'll be tomorrow, and tomorrow we will not know what it will be the day after. So, uh, you know, like every other tax, inflation acts to determine, um, basically, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, like every, it, it acts to determine the individual and business policies that, that everyone's forced to follow. So if you know that prices are going up, you're going to have policies that go accordingly. It discourages all prudence and thrift. It encourages squandering, gambling, reckless waste of all kinds. And it often makes it more profitable to speculate than to produce. It tears apart the whole fabric of stable economic relationships. Its inexcusable injustices drive men towards desperate remedies. It plants the seeds of communism and of fascism. It leads men to demand totalitarian controls and ends invariably in bitter disillusion and collapse. That's Henry Hazlitt out of his book Economics and One Easy Lesson. Now, if you want to hear a little bit more about inflation, I will now turn you over to uh, someone who I've played on the show a number of times before. For the next few minutes, you'll be hearing from Dr. Walter Williams, a bit of American uh, perspective on inflation, and I think you might find this interesting. I believe for the first time in our entire history that we have all of the conditions for a runaway inflation. What I mean by that we have all of the conditions to go to bed one night with inflation clipping along at 2 or 3 percent and waking up the next morning and finding it at 30 percent. And of course there's runaway government. <coughs> Excuse me, I refer to these as symptoms of our problems rather than causes. And for right now I'll summarize the cause of our problem as being a significant departure from the principles of liberty that made us a rich nation in the first place. And these principles of freedom were embodied in our nation through the combined institutions of private ownership of property and free enterprise. Now through numerous successful attacks Private property and free enterprise are mere skeletons of their past. And Thomas Jefferson anticipated this when he said, the natural progress of things is for government to gain ground and for liberty to yield. And we can look at how government, or one of the best ways to look at how government is gaining ground 
and liberty yielding is to look at what is happening to taxes and spending. There's only one way to look at taxes. Taxes represent government claims on private property. And indeed, if government were to tax private property at 100%, it would confiscate private property. And taxes are going up. An even better measure of what government does is to look at spending. And to put spending in a, per, in a historical perspective, we can look at the, what was spending in 1902 at the turn of the century. In 1902, expenditures at all levels of government, federal, state, and local levels of government, totaled $1.7 billion. In that year, the average taxpayer paid $60 in federal, state, and local taxes. Today, federal expenditures alone are over $1.5 trillion. And that's if you ignore the underground federal government, the so-called off-budget expenditures. State and local governments spend over a trillion. Today, the average taxpayer pays over $8,000 a year in federal, state, and local taxes. Now, what does this mean? It means that as time goes by, you and I own less and less of our most valuable property, namely ourselves and the fruits of our labor. If you happen to be rich and to feel like a nice entertainment, you can pay for a gay escape. If you happen to be rich and alone and you need a companion, you can ring tingling for some mate. If you happen to be rich and you find you are left by your lover and you moan and you go and fight a lot, you can take it on the chin, call a cab and begin to recover on your 14 carat yards. What? Money makes the world go round, the world go round, the world go round. Money makes us go round, the fact we both are sure. You gotta turn it into a game. Being broke's pretty exciting. People with jobs don't know what you're missing, man. Oh, every day's an adventure. What's gonna happen today? Oh, am I gonna eat? Oh. It's exciting. It's a little too exciting when I'm using my bank card to buy stuff. You know that feeling when you don't know, really? Did the check come out yet? I don't know. She swipes it through and all of a sudden it's like you're defusing a bomb. You know? Oh God, it's taking too long. You're sweating. <laughs> Processing, that doesn't sound good. Oh. <laughs> Approved? Yeah! Yes! All right. I'm gonna enjoy this Snickers.
Welcome back. This is Just Right with Bob Metz, and you're listening to CHRW Radio 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you for a few minutes more until noon. Uh, now, that was Walter Williams earlier, just at the early part of that clip, uh, talking about the, the, you know, the increasing danger of runaway inflation, but no one can ever call the time on that. It could be tomorrow. It could be 10 years from now. But uh, certainly all the pieces are in place. A number of people are, you know, you, you get the feeling, especially of late, how people feel like they're working harder and harder and not getting ahead in life, even though they should be getting further ahead and feeling that they're making some progress, which, by the way, is a very different feeling from what it was like in the 50s and 60s. People didn't feel that way then, even if they were poor. Uh, they still felt that there was, you know, you could work hard and actually believe that you could get a payoff at the end. And what has changed between now and then? In many ways, we're more wealthy, which is an illusion for people in the sense of the money issue, because we do have technology that's been saving our butt for so long, uh, you know, because you can live cheaper and uh, take the average DVD player that costs. You can get one as cheap as nineteen, twenty dollars A machine like that 10 years ago would have cost you several hundred bucks and would have been out of the reach of many people. But what is, you know, what can we, what's part of the problem? Uh, it's not just the fact of, uh, of people being, you know, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and things of, of that nature. Because it's not true that there's, quote, only so much wealth to go around. Wealth is always being increased. But one of the solutions to the problem, as being proposed by a compatriot of mine, friend of mine, and someone who's been on this show before, uh, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, he sees the problem with money um, not as being about the gold standard per se and not having money on the gold standard because uh, he, that's not really an issue. Whether, whether a government officially decides to go on a gold standard or a silver standard or otherwise is not important because gold is still a value and silver is a value. That standard exists independent of the government law or whether it's there as a fiat. But what Paul seems to, what Paul advocates is that we should have a fixed number of dollars in our economy, and thus only the value of each dollar changes. If you have a much more productive economy, everyone's got a stake in it, everyone will benefit from it because their dollars will buy more. In other, way, other words, you could get a pay increase without having to actually see the dollar value of your pay go up. You know, suddenly things would be cheaper. And, of course, the issue is, the big problem is credit expansion. And uh, about two, two, three years ago, Paul wrote a, uh, a piece called Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise about uh, the monetary system and the money supply in Canada. And it had, had a lot to do with also dealing with Canada's debt, which gets too complicated to get into in the last few minutes that I've got here. But here's some interesting uh, facts and issues that you might find a little fascinating. Here, here in Canada, basically dollars take two essential forms, okay, cash and credit. And there are about $700 billion in use in Canada. That means that's roughly, give or take, how many dollars are in circulation in Canada. Now, that's money. That's not the wealth of the nation. That's the currency we're talking about, what we would call money. About $35 billion of those $700 billion are in the form of cash, and the correct legal term for that is called currency. So $35 billion in cash, which would be notes printed by the Bank of Canada. It would include pennies, nickels, dimes, all that sort of stuff. But the rest of Canada's dollars, uh, $665 billion approximately, 
are created by private banks, and that would be banks like the Royal Bank, you know, TD Bank, Bank of Nova Scotia, Bank of Montreal, etc. And they basically create money by something that they call creating a credit. So every time you purchase anything with a debit card or a credit card or a check, you're paying someone not with cash really, but with bank-made credit. The bank doesn't even have to have the cash on hand. Like cash, credit gets passed from person to person. And if you're like most Canadians, you're paid in credit, not in cash, on your average payday. They don't give you cash through a window wicket. They deposit some money into your account or give you a check, which, again, is a form of credit drawn on a bank. And, uh, you know, where do you find credit? It's in your bank account, of course. When you open your bank book and see a $10 balance, that means the bank owes you $10 of Canadian cash. But what you hold is $10 of credit. In other words, credit is nothing but an IOU of the bank in lieu of cash, and your account balance is a record that tells you in the bank how much cash the bank owes you. But you may never need that cash. As long as you're doing your transactions by check and never actually taking cash out of the bank, you can carry on with credit as being your main means of money. So there's two ways you can pay someone in Canada. You can pass cash from your hand to their hand, or you can move credit from your bank account to the other person's bank account using a check or a debit card. But the critical thing to notice is that because we're all willing to accept credit in exchange for good, goods and services, credit is money, just like cash. And that's probably how the whole credit system got started on Star Trek, where they think that they don't need money anymore because maybe nobody ever actually sees the cash. But every time a bank teller creates a dollar of new credit and lends it to someone, uh, you know, somebody comes in for a loan, it adds a dollar to the total supply of the Canadian dollars that are out there. And of course, the reverse is also true. Every time a borrower repays a dollar of his bank loan, the bank destroys a dollar of credit. And that way, one dollar is removed from the supply of Canadian dollars. But over the long term, banks have tended to create and lend out much more credit than they destroy, and banks have tended to cause the total supply of Canadian dollars uh, to increase over time. Now, you might want to blame the banks for all of this, but it's not really them that got us into debt. It's really politicians and the government that did that, because they're the ones doing most of the borrowing. And... Uh, you know, but just because of that fact, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't fix our banking laws, which uh, is something that uh, uh, Paul McKeever suggested in, in his brief. Because he says our banking laws actually allow banks to increase the supply of dollars by creating credit, essentially out of thin air, to which in effect transfers wealth from the pockets of Canadians to the pockets of banks. Just like counterfeiting, just as if you went out and printed uh, some fake $10 bills or some $20 bills and used them for a while. Uh, you'd be actually stealing money from someone, even if you burn those bills later and put the money supply right later on. But uh, among the, the considered you know, repairs to this system is to have a 100% reserve requirement and prevent governments and banks from increasing the total supply of Canadian dollars. Now, that's dollars we're talking about, not money per se. Uh, you know, we, we now see the value of our pennies getting so low that they're almost useless, when in fact they could be going the other way. They could have been getting more valuable, and we'd have to be considering what the British once had, like a half penny and things of that nature. You can expand the money supply in terms of its tokens and its representations, but there has been a lot of talk about keeping that fixed dollar of volumes, and we're talking about government dollars here, of course. And... Uh, 
this has been considered back in 1933 and 35. The U.S. government had a banking crisis, and a group of people, including uh, Irving Fisher and Henry Simon, drafted a proposal to President Roosevelt at the time called the Chicago Plan, which was supposed to get them out of the crisis that they had. And they, and by the way, uh, I believe Irving Fisher is the guy who came up with the term, you know, the basket of goods that people use to to use to measure uh, consumer goods and gross national product and things of that nature. But among all of their recommendations, the one thing that was not uh, followed and not kept to was a 100% reserve requirement. It wasn't adopted because the Wall Street banks lobbied very hard to keep their power to create and rent out money. And they won. And if you think this is just a, a pie-in-the-sky kind of idea, uh, it was supported by many uh, highly respected economists, including Irving Fisher, who, who dealt with the issue in his book called 100% Money, Milton Friedman in his book A Program for Monetary Stability, and Murray Rothbard in his book what Government, or sorry, What Has Government Done to Our Money, uh, which apparently are all available online somewhere if you want to get a ho hold of them. But uh, just to mention a few of them, th that they all believe that there should be a 100% reserve uh, requirement for money, and, uh, of course, banks don't want it. So you, in, in other words, in short, they would be recommending that we have a fixed volume of dollars and that only the value of the dollar changes. So if we had, say, $700 billion of Canadian dollars today, that's how it should stay. We'd always have $700 billion in circulation. doesn't mean you'd run out of money, as people think, because what would happen is we wouldn't have a credit expansion or an expansion of the value of money. We'd actually have money get more valuable, and then people would actually feel that they were getting ahead in life rather than always uh, falling behind. But that's just the, one of the many ways that governments can redistribute our wealth is through uh, inflation. I think inflation is much higher than what they're telling us, we hear about it all the time in the, you know, in the news and stuff. Oh, it's only running at 2%. It might be in the general, uh, in, in a lot of the commodities that they're measuring, but you can certainly see the bubble bursting in certain areas, particularly in the outlandish prices of houses nowadays. That's where you can see uh, that it just doesn't seem to match. I can buy something very cheap on a consumer level uh, in terms of electronics and stuff with a dollar that wouldn't have bought much more 20, 30, 30 years ago. And uh, today, that's just not the case. Anyways, we're on our we're out of time. We've got to go. I'm getting the signals from the room next door, so I'm not going to get a chance to talk about what we should do about all those pennies we have. We'll get to that one next time around in the future. So that's it for this week, folks. So until next week, take care. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right, and we'll see you again then. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. They accuse me of killing the Queen Mother. Couldn't think of a way into that joke. But um, they did. They accused me of killing the Queen Mother when she died. It was very sad. But I got the blame. I'll never forget coming home on that fateful day, hitting the button on the remote control, and the man on the news said, if you've just turned your televisions on, the Queen Mother is dead.